17th of April in the year of our salvation 2007 and this is a podcast with Father Z. We are going to welcome as our guest today Saint Fulgentius of Ruspe who stands very much in the Augustinian tradition, perhaps one of the very first of that uh, Augustinian tradition. He died in 533. We'll hear um, the selection from the second reading of today's Office of Readings, authored by Fulgentius of Ruspe. It's a work ad monimum, but we'll get into that. We're also going to talk about the historical critical method Uh, I'm inspired by the Holy Father's new book, Jesus of Nazareth, to talk about this a bit and to tell you what the Holy Father says about the historical critical method. Here we go. Fulgentius of Ruspe died in 533. We've heard from him before in these podcasts. Uh, when I talked about the division of rhetoric, I used one of his pieces to show how ancient rhetors worked and how their minds uh, worked from their training in ancient rhetoric. Well, you might remember that he was a North African, though he knew Greek, and he eventually became Bishop of Bizacena. It's a place in Tunisia. And he was very interested in the monastic life, but he had the great misfortune of living in North Africa that had been uh, several decades before invaded by the Vandals, who were Arians, and therefore they didn't believe that Christ was equal to the Father. They thought that uh, the Son was a created being instead of a divine person. And so Fulgentius immediately had his hands full with all these Arians, and he wrote anti-Arian works and worked against them. As a matter of fact, he had very bad run-ins with uh, with the Vandals. Uh, he was terribly beaten once by an Arian priest, and then eventually he was exiled away from North Africa, which turns out historically, I think, to have been a great service for everyone, uh, because in about uh, 508, uh, when he was exiled from North Africa to Sardinia, Fulgentius took along with him the bones of St. Augustine of Hippo along with his library. At least we're pretty sure that's how it escaped. And so it was uh, one of these things where you see how God can bring good things uh, out of very bad, bad conditions. See, it's really important to read authors in their historical contexts and understand uh, what their conditions were, what their social conditions, because we can understand a great deal more from them uh, by doing so. And this is one of the reasons why the historical critical method is so important when we look at texts. But uh, setting that aside for the moment, let's hear from Fulgentius of Ruspe, uh, from whose work 
ad monimum, a guy named Monimus, uh, asked him some questions, and Fulgentius is responding, and this is the second reading in today's Office of Readings. Libri Sancti Fulgensii Ruspensis Episcopi Ad Monimum. Heic spiritalis edificatio corporis Christi, quae fit in caritate, cum scilicet secundum beati Petri sermonem, lapides vivi edificantur in domum spiritalem, in sacerdotium sanctum, operente spiritales hostias acceptabiles Deo per Iesum Christum, heic inquam edificatio spiritalis, Numquam opportunius petitur, quam cum ab ipso Christi corpore, quod est ecclesia, in sacramento panis et calicis ipsum Christi corpus et sanguis offertur. The spiritual building up of the body of Christ is achieved through love. As St. Peter says, like living stones you are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there can be no more effective way to pray for the spiritual growth than for the Church, itself Christ's body, to make the offering of His body and blood in the sacramental form of bread and wine. For the cup we drink is a participation in the blood of Christ, and the bread we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, since we all share the same bread. And so we pray that by the same grace which made the church Christ's body, all its members may remain firm in the unity of that body through the enduring bond of love. We are right to pray that this may be brought about in us through the gift of the one Spirit of the Father and the Son. The Holy Trinity, the one true God, is of its nature unity, equality, and love, and by one divine activity sanctifies its adopted sons. That is why Scripture says that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit He has given us. The Holy Spirit who is the one Spirit of the Father and the Son, produces in those to whom he gives the grace of divine adoption the same effect he produced among those whom the Acts of the Apostles describes as having received the Holy Spirit. We are told that the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, because the one Spirit of the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is one God, had created a single heart and soul in all those who believed. This is why St. Paul, in his exhortation to the Ephesians, says that this spiritual unity in the bond of peace must be carefully preserved. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he writes, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, with all humility and meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit. God makes the church itself a sacrifice pleasing in his sight by preserving within it the love which his Holy Spirit has poured out. Thus the grace of that spiritual love is always available to us, enabling us continually to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him forever. Ipsam ecclesiam sibi gratum sacrificium facit, quae ipsam semper possit gratiam spiritatis caritatis accipere, per quam se possit ostiam vivam sanctam, Deo placentem jugiter exibere. That was a selection of Fulgencius of Ruspe's work Ad Monimum, and uh, you'll, you heard in it how he stressed the unity of the three persons of the Holy Trinity, making sure that that uh, the reader understood very clearly that the Holy Spirit was God. Now, uh, before we got into that reading, I mentioned the historical critical method, and I really should flesh that out a little bit. The historical critical method uh, is a tool of scientific research, and it takes into account the time and the place of the writer and his context and the reasons he had for writing and who his audience was and what the cultural conditions were and so forth. And this helps us to read texts without misunderstanding them by imposing our own context today and our own modern ideas on them. You see, sometimes it's very unfair to read someone from the 5th century or the 6th century, like Fulgentius, uh, but you know, imposing on it our 21st century context and ideas. You see, it distorts the text. So what we want to do with this method in looking at the social history and their context is, is uh, understand what their objectives were and what their conditions were at the time so that we can understand the texts a little better. And so when we read the Fathers, 
We have to know their social history, as well as their intellectual formation, the kind of philosophy that they had, and their rhetorical training, and all these different things. But because the fathers were working with Scripture from a point of view of great faith in the content of Scripture, and their faith in Christ, and their membership of the Church, we must be very sensitive to the limitations of the historical critical method, too. Now, recently, uh, the Holy Father, in his brand new book, Jesus of Nazareth, talks about the necessity of using the historical critical method, especially with scripture, but he also warns of its limitations. You see, the whole historical critical method is a great tool, but it can be abused. You see, on the one hand, the texts of scripture are very concrete, and they can be looked at uh, both from the point of view of their social and their literary content and so forth, but also they can be seen in relationship to each other as they come to form a body of writings that is a canon of scripture, but we have to be careful not to isolate scripture, uh, either individual texts or books or the whole canon of scripture. We must not isolate it in the past as if it is just a dead letter. You see, the historical critical method automatically assumes that something is in the past, but then it leaves it there. And that's a very great limitation for thinking about scripture. Now, in his preface to his book, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, explains that there are different levels of authorship at work in Scripture. And this could be very useful for us, especially when we go to Holy Mass and we hear uh, readings from Scripture. First of all, we can identify the authors or you know, the individual author who produced a particular text or book. Right, and they have a social context, and they have a history, and there are different things going on around them, and so forth. We can identify the author of the authors. But then remember that the author or authors belong to a people with their own identity and their own genius, so to speak. And so the people could be considered to be a deeper author of Scripture. But then this people has a special relationship to God. And so God, who is active and working in the history of his people, is the deepest author of all. And so scriptures are not dead letters, they are alive. And especially now that we are thinking in terms of the people of God who is the church, right? scriptures are not dead, they must be read uh, not as if they're just in the past. And so the scriptures, by their very nature, require us to use the historical critical method in order to understand the contexts and the languages and the philosophy and the different intellectual currents and the history and who's invading who, etc., etc. But also by their very nature, they call for other methods and other approaches as well, not just the historical critical method. And, and of course, one of those one of those uh, approaches and methods is prayer and contemplation. We cannot separate scriptures and put them in the past uh, merely and leave them there just as if they're some kind of literary fossil. We also have to approach them from prayer, understanding that they are alive and they speak in a living way.
Now, this historical critical method I've been talking about has caused a little damage over the years because by reducing scripture to a dead letter or something in the past, uh, it, it basically, when we study it, or uh, for many decades when people have studied it, it's almost like they're destroying the very thing that they're studying, you see. And this is why I think that the fathers of the church are so important for us to recover uh, new, uh, shall we say, even old ways of reading Holy Scripture. And I'm not talking about uh, an anti-intellectual approach, because these were very, very smart men, but they, they weren't using the same kind of modern scientific tools of research when they were looking at Scripture. They were much closer to it, and they were still working out a lot of these big questions that today, you know, any kid can learn in, in catechism, if he's getting a good catechism training, that is. But the fathers of the church who approached their texts with prayer, and using the very best methods of their own day, can teach us again how to read Scripture. What we need to do is listen to these great works of the past so that we can learn from them. Very often you get the impression that some theologians or scholars or, or figures in the church today think that nothing really happened in the church for all those centuries until Vatican II, as if as if theolo theology began in 1963 or something, and everything that was before is either irrelevant to us or, you know, just in the past, it just really isn't important. It doesn't have to be known. Now, as I was reading the Holy Father's book and listening to him uh, off of the page talk about the importance of complementary methods and not relegating scripture to the past, I was reminded of a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, in which the old, ta the old demon tells the younger tempter Wormwood, uh, his nephew, um, about the uses, about how useful the historical critical method can be to destroy the truth of a text and also to uh, trick people into thinking that it's just uh, a, a fossil of the dusty path. Let's listen to that little section of the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis where he talks about the historical method. that some meddlesome human writer, notably Boethius, have let this secret out. But in the intellectual climate that we have at last succeeded in producing throughout Western Europe, you needn't bother about that. Only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are, of all men, the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. The historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks who influenced the ancient writer and how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books and what phase in the writer's development or in the general history of thought it illustrates and how it affected later writers and how it has been misunderstood, especially by the learned man's own colleagues, and what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last ten years and what is the present state of the question. To regard the ancient writer as a possible source of knowledge 
to anticipate what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or your behaviour, this would be rejected as unutterably simple-minded. And since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. But, thanks be to our father and the historical point of view, great scholars are now as little nourished by the past as the most ignorant mechanic who holds that history is bunk. Your affectionate uncle, Scrutex. I just love that recording of the screw tape letters. It's done by John Cleese, who was one of the old Monty Python troupe. And uh, sometimes when I'm walking all around in Rome, I listen to it with uh, my little earpieces and my MP3 player. But now, remember, when we read scripture, it's important not to think of it as something merely in the past, because Christ, who is a living person, is the content of each word of scripture. And this is especially important to remember when you go into church for Holy Mass. Christ speaks to you in those texts. When you hear of the history of salvation in the readings, you're not just hearing about events of some place long ago and far away in a foreign land. You are hearing about your own family history. The history of salvation is ongoing, and it's about you. You have your own part to play in this ongoing history of salvation. These things are not fossils of the past. They're alive, they're real, and they make us who they are. We are our texts and we are our rights. Such a sense of nostalgia this song stirs in me. Many years ago in seminary and uh, ever afterwards, friends and I have written parody songs uh, using popular melodies and then rewriting the lyrics. And, well, when the Holy See said that girls and women could serve at the altar in Mass, this is the song that I adapted to express my own heartfelt sentiments about uh, that authentic interpretation of the Code of Canon Law. You might imagine what I did with it. In any event, come on over and visit us at the blog, WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the bird really say? And there you can get involved in discussions, maybe be a little amused and uh, edified. You can also pre-order the Holy Father's book there. It'll be coming out in May in English. And uh, the book isn't so hard. It's not beyond you to read. As a, you, can, you can savor it. As a matter of fact, if you read it out loud, uh, it'll unlock some of the harder points and texts. But it's not beyond people if you take your time with it and, uh, and read it with care. Also, it's a wonderful remedy to all of the 
sensationalistic tripe that's been spewed out there into the marketplace and put on grocery store stands and so forth. It's a wonderful book, and I think everybody should have it and, uh, and enjoy it. From high above sunny Rome, this is Father Z signing off. God bless you. Thank you.